imagine you have an autocomplete that instead of going one or two words in the future could write for up to about 800 words at a time with a decent amount of, of um, plausibility that it was a human writing. heard from Micah Musser, a research analyst at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology, or CSET, where he works on the Cyber AI project. Welcome to our listeners, and today we're talking about powerful artificial intelligence contributing to the spread of disinformation. I'm Daiva Repechkaite. My name's Eva von Schaper, and today we're going to take a look at a technology that uses huge amounts of computing power and that can be used to generate disinformation. It came out earlier last year, and since then there has been debate if the technology can be used by so-called disinformation actors. Just to make a quick note, disinformation is the term used for information lacking a factual basis that is spread with a malicious intent. Misinformation, in contrast, is spread by unknowing actors. Right. And we've been researching disinformation for over a year now. And one thing we've heard and heard again is that disinformation is generated and spread by humans. Yes. And do you remember Rand's Miriam Matthews and how she explained the fire hose of disinformation? Yes. And then I asked her how one can imagine disinformation actors working. And what she told me, basically, there are people in rooms sitting in front of computers just trying to push out massive amounts of misleading and false information. Part of it are bots, so there are bots amplifying these messages. But then, you know, the writing is done by humans, as far as we know, at least. And we know that disinformation spreaders take advantage of each step forward in technology. Bots, plenty of them spreading falsehoods. So now it's artificial intelligence's turn? Well, maybe. Last year, I heard about something called GPT-3, artificial intelligence that could produce disinformation by itself. Early last year, a team of researchers used this AI tool to ask a computer to compose disinformation. It ran through six different tests, and the computer fooled human proofreaders a worrying amount of time. And so I talked to Micah Musser, one of the researchers, to find out more. So who is Micah Messer again? Here's Micah introducing himself. Uh, So my name is Micah Messer. Uh, I am a research analyst at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Uh, That's a a newish think tank uh, housed in Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. We study the security implications of new technologies, especially AI. Um, I've actually touched a lot of things. I've written on AI and cybersecurity. Um, I've written on AI and automated disinformation. Um, and I've written on AI policy more generally. And when I was talking to Micah, one term that kept popping up was that of a model. A model, like a supermodel. <laughs> Someone like Cindy Crawford. Well, not exactly, of course, but... I just asked Micah to explain it for somebody, maybe you, who's not an expert on artificial intelligence. In AI speak, I guess, a a model is basically a a trained uh, mathematical representation of something. Um, So in, in this instance, we're talking about language models 
These are, are basically um, representations of how human language works. But functionally, most of them, when we, when we talk about language models, large language models, um, most of them are, are basically assigned the task of learning how to continue previously written text in a way that is plausible. Wait, that's still a lot to grasp. Can we break it down? Well, yeah, it's true. It is a lot. And I, so I just asked Micah, you know, how can we just best imagine, how can we best think of GPT-3? So I actually like to call GPT-3 autocomplete on steroids. It's really not necessarily anything more like fundamentally strange than that. It's mm-hmm. just imagine you have an, have an autocomplete that instead of going one or two words in the future could write for up to about 800 words at a time with okay. a decent amount of of um, plausibility that it was a human writing. And then I wanted to know, how old is this field? Is it very new? I, I don't remember really hearing about it, you know, except maybe five years ago. The field of natural language processing is uh, several decades old at this point. Um, but a natural language processing includes a lot of things like um, sentiment analysis is a big topic in that subfield. And historically, that has oftentimes relied on fairly human intensive methods, like trying to get lots of people to label stuff and then even maybe label keywords with sentiments. This this new approach in AI is basically is is far more unstructured that you just uh, take a, a massive amount of data of human text and a massive amount of computing power and you let an AI sort of run rampant and try to learn the relationships between the words. And this is really, I think it only started entering the like mainstream consciousness when uh, GPT-2 was released, which was only as recent as 2019. You know, people who were paying attention, maybe it goes back a year or two more. Um, Google had been investing a lot of energy to improve its translation services. But it's ultimately the the idea of a large language model that has millions or billions of parameters is a, probably not much more than half a decade old. How did Michael start his research? Well, here's what he told me. So we, we started out, we tried to think through um, what sorts of skills, if you were a a disinformation operator, uh, what would it be nice for you to automate? Uh, And there's, there's a couple of different things. I mean, it's, it's sort of arbitrary, but we, we pulled out six different ones. Really like the, the, the most basic one is oftentimes um, you just want to turn out a lot of content, short pieces of content, um, custom made for social media, you know, tweet length, maybe, maybe a sentence or two for Facebook um, but that just hammers home the same theme over and over, but that does so without repeating itself. That's the wrinkle because, I mean, a lot of campaigns, even now, a lot of information operations, they will, you can see, you know, people pulling out the same copy paste, uh, and it, and it's very obvious that there's coordination going on. So the thought is it's much harder to notice that sort of thing if, each claim is like semantically stated in a different way. And it turns out this is really something that GPT-3 can do extremely well with very little prompting. 
Um, it learns super well when you want it to do things that are individually short and you can provide it even just five or 10 examples. Um, it can basically iterate in a sort of unconstrained and limitless way. And the error rate in terms of saying things that are obvious tells is, is pretty low, you know, depending what uh, an operator's permissiveness is for the occasional like nonsensical tweet, it is the type of thing that you might just hook directly up to social media and let it, let it go without human interference. I wondered how difficult would it be to give the model raw material to construct tweets? Would it also have to be fed tweets? It definitely does not have to be tweets. Um, it can, GPT-3 is extremely versatile. Actually, it's, It's still kind of impressive to me um, when people were just starting to play with the model, they noticed even if you feed it like guitar chord progressions, um, it seems to have some understanding of that and it can complete like a, a guitar chord sequence. So it's super versatile. Really, the, the constraint, I think, is not the domain so much as the length of what you're looking for. Longer outputs, it does still have a little bit more trouble maintaining plausibility. But anything that is a short output, I, I basically think it probably can figure out, um, okay. unless it's like a, an extremely rare domain. What was the model good at? Well, the model wasn't uh, good at everything. It was not convincing at one type of behavior, but it was very, very good at others. Here's what Micah told me about what these models are good at. There are... One type of behavior on Twitter GPT-3 would be extremely good at, which is um, potentially like, you know, um, pump me down a ton of stuff using a specific hashtag and taking over that, right? A lot of other stuff happens on Twitter that is much harder for the model to understand, especially sustained back and forths. Um, so it's not nearly as good at like a sustained type of conversation And it can, uh, when we tested that just a little bit and it would sometimes like flip flop or confuse the position it was supposed to be defending, um, or make all sorts of weird conversational moves that didn't necessarily map onto what an operator wanted. So this would really play to a disinformation actor using that uh, fire hose strategy. Is that right? Yes, indeed it is. Here's what Micah told me. That, that does sort of play to GPT-3's strengths. There are other contexts where, so other skills we tested, I'll just mention, I think, one or two others. So, for instance, one thing I, I, I played with for a while is I wanted to see, could I get it to, uh, if, I, if I fed GPT-3 a breaking news story, and I told it, spin this in a way that is favorable for X group, could it do that? And... Um, That's that's much, much harder to do. In fact, you'll notice, I think, that that is actually, that's a very cognitively complex task to ask a human to do. Even even like if I'm saying spin this for a Republican cent, even an American would very likely struggle or have to think for a fair bit of time about that. So it's not necessarily surprising that GPT-3 doesn't do as well here. That being said... We, we tested this by taking some Associated Press articles from over the course of 2020. Um, I'll also mention here that GPT-3's training data actually cut off near the end of 2019. So the important, I think, caveat here is that we were testing it on content that really it didn't have any awareness of. 
that it had never seen this information before. But we asked it to spin some stories about um, COVID or uh, George Floyd protests in the U.S., um, that sort of thing. And then we had some of our colleagues here at CSET um, read them compared to the original and basically guess which ones they thought were fake. And I, I threw in some other like very partisan but real world publications about this this stuff. And GPT-3 was not very reliable at fooling them, which is the good news. Okay. The bad news is at least a few of those outputs did fool um, several of our colleagues, people who even knew that they were being exposed somewhere to GPT-3 still couldn't always tell what was GPT-3 from what was a human. So now let's say GPT-3 had help from human editors. Would that make it even more powerful? Another application of, of these types of language models, not, not necessarily GPT-3 itself, but certainly other language models that are more specialized for this, is translation. So you could easily think like, you know, as machine translation improves, um, especially translation of idiomatic expressions, instead of like, you know, a Russian having to write an article in English that ends up sounding very janky to an English audience, they could just write it in Russian and then machine translate it and ideally do it in such a way that a machine can also add in appropriate um, English idioms and, and really give it extra authenticity. This might also be a worry that like you would see increased targeting of um, more marginalized populations over time, where the barrier is often that language barrier. And that's the barrier both from respected news sources and disinformation actors, that it's it's hard to convey information to people who you don't share a language with and you don't have staff that shares a language with. And where does that leave us? How dangerous is this? One thing we haven't mentioned yet is that OpenAI, the foundation that developed GPT-3, does not give just anyone access to this model. Our research is, was very exclusively focused on GPT-3. Um, that's the one that we had access to. And uh, it was sort of just, just before a lot of these other ones came out. OpenAI has definitely done something very interesting in the way that they've tried to control access to the model. They have many um, monitoring controls in place to try to determine who actually gets access, what they're planning to use it for, whether or not the queries they're submitting actually align with what they said they were going to do. It's, it's always a little unclear, like, how much bad behavior is being caught by this, right? It's, it's unclear, could you do more? Unfortunately, though, it might almost not matter at a certain okay. point because GPT-3 is no longer the only one of these things in town. Uh, this year, there's there's been a, just a rash of South Korea released one called Hyperclova that's comparably sized but specialized for uh, Korean. An Israeli startup released one um, called, I think, uh, Jurassic. Um, there's multiple Chinese versions of this model, all similarly sized. And uh, even open open source researchers, a collective of, of open source researchers, researchers called um, Eleuther AI, released um, at just a totally open source English focused model as well. 
It's definitely smaller than GPT-3. It's 6 billion parameters as opposed to 175. There, there are power law relationships here where you need increasingly more. So it's, it's still very good is the point. Um, and it's totally free for anyone to use. So there's a big question of like, well, how much does GPT-3's mo- or OpenAI's monitoring system even matter if there are so many other options for people to choose from. So that, that I think the, the monitoring thing is a very unclear thing. The question in terms of where are we now, I think comes down to a question of my, my personal read is it, it basically depends on the institutional dynamics of the groups that do disinformation. Okay. If they're very experimental, if there's like an experimental ethos, um, I would expect to see this sort of thing being used next year, probably at the latest, if it's not already being used in some capacity. Um, if the institutions are like a little more hierarchical and, and rigidly structured, it might take longer. But I think functionally, it's a question of when, not if. Should we be worried about this development? Well, that's exactly what I asked Micah. How dangerous is all of this? And is this really going to turbocharge disinformation? I'm worried, but I'm less worried than I think a lot of people might be. I think that to a large extent, the internet is already a pretty noxious place where you can seek out any argument you want to hear. So better targeted disinformation is never good. You don't want it, but it is... Well, well, let me put it this way. I think that there's just a lot of missing psychological information about how important any of this is. So the questions for me are not so much operational. Will people try to use this technology or not? They're much more psychological. How much will it actually change people's views? How does this compare to deep fakes, you know, the fake videos and images that have been covered quite a bit in the press already? Well, there are some differences, and maybe the most important one being um, the ability to detect automated uh, text disinformation. So this is what Micah told me. So one one wrinkle here is that um, deep fakes, synthetic images, oftentimes will leave um, very subtle patterns that are not detectable to a human, but that sort of say something about machine authorship, just mm-hmm. sort of statistical perturbations that you wouldn't expect to see. And so, um, I mean, the, the problem is that as soon as you notice it, you can train a model to not do it. There's this arms race that goes on between people making it and people trying mm-hmm. to detect it. But regardless, the reason it's possible to do that at all is that an image has usually thousands of pixels, tens of thousands, maybe millions, um, all of which can be one of, again, several tens of thousands of values. So you have what what we would call an extremely high-dimensional space here. Language, especially short bits of language like a tweet, it's just not as highly dimensional. Um, If you're only working with 100 words, it's much harder to find a reliable, very subtle, like statistical abnormality that would speak to machine authorship than if you have something like a picture. 
So this creates a massive problem for it. This is why you asked me earlier, is there evidence that this is being used? And I said, basically, we don't know, because once it's out there, we don't really have a way to then um, identify like if there are regularities or patterns. So the key here, I think, is that it's super hard to detect, but that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't options out there that um, companies could could put together or try to um, try to manage. For instance, you know, I said with a hundred words, it's very hard to detect. It's unclear if that would apply if you had a million words. So if Facebook collated a bunch of accounts that they suspected uh, were behaving inauthentically and sent all of the output of all of those accounts to, to someone like OpenAI, there might then be at that scale statistical irregularities that suggest machine authorship. So I was saying companies should self-regulate. That isn't working in the print or online domain, is it? And that's true. And if we look at our last edition, it's not working um, in the podcast space either, is it? If we look at Spotify, um, how that went down, it's, it certainly isn't working. So let's just hear what Micah told me. If the companies were serious about doing all they could to identify AI-generated content. Um, I think there are options they could at least explore, but it's very unclear, like probably low single percentages of any machine-authored content might be able to be detected at all. And even that feels optimistic. So, Micah, can we expect these models just to get bigger and bigger and more and more powerful? I think the, the future of these large language models is still kind of unclear. We've had five years of just extraordinary growth in this area, but um, exponentials usually can't continue forever. And it's it's been actually significantly longer between the present and the release of GPT-3 than it was between the release of GPT-2 and GPT-3. So it's unclear, you know, how much more there is to grow here. Um, that's that's I think one big question mark from the technical side. The other thing that I had sort of alluded to is that, um, you know, there's now a Korean model and multiple Chinese models and lots of these. Um, I think just as part of the like Western, largely English speaking world, it's sometimes important to remember that um, if we think about Russia or China, oftentimes their main targets of disinformation are not necessarily English speakers, especially mm -hmm. in, in China, where it's oftentimes much more a question of internal domestic stability that drives these decisions. So there's a there's a big question mark there, too, of how much will they really invest in using English models to target English speakers versus cultivating their own you know, domestic models that are more fine tuned on the nationality's own language. This episode was produced with support of the Transatlantic Media Fellowship by the Heinrich Böll Foundation, Washington, D.C., Please subscribe to our newsletter and this show on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform of your choice. Follow us on Facebook as 
at the inoculation on twitter as at the inoculation and on instagram as at the underscore inoculation that's all for this week bye for now bye for now